Welcome back. You're listening to the front page edition of All Things Considered. I'm Catherine Awasti. And I'm Cameron Taylor. Since Friday's shooting in Newtown, Connecticut, lawmakers and residents across the country are now bringing up the issue of gun control in schools. The shooting has had school and law enforcement officials reconsider their safety plans for emergencies. Alachua County Sheriff Sadie Darnell says ASO will be working even closer with Alachua County Public Schools after meeting with Superintendent Dan Boyd earlier today. You know, right now our priority and will remain one of our priorities going into 2013 is an emphasis on uh, safety for our children in our schools. I attended a meeting this morning with Superintendent Boyd. He called the meeting with the area law enforcement, and we have a very uh, productive, uh, ambitious plan uh, that we're going to be working on the first part of this year, which builds on already a good commitment of uh, high security, uh, good uh, collaboration Uh, among our law enforcement and school personnel. Darnell says safety procedures are already in place at at schools and 14 of Alachua County's public schools have resource officers. Overall, we've got uh, a good needs assessment, uh, training that's already been in place, good dialogue over the years, and not only dialogue and talking about it, but actually practices that have been put in place over the years to make sure that our schools are Harden as uh, from a target standpoint as much as possible. Uh, that drills and training and sharing information and uh, communicating, uh, you know, uh, risk assessments among our staff and school staff that has been going on for years. Sheriff Darnell says she would like to increase the number of resource officers in schools if the funds are there. My immediate need is to attend to the safety needs of the school. It's going to be costly. I'm not sure how we're going to move deputies into the elementary schools, but uh, we've got a couple weeks to think about it. And uh, it is the priority right now so that we can ensure the safety of our children. The discussion of safety in schools has also brought up the issue of gun control. While some are advocating for school administrators to become armed, Alachua County Sheriff Sadie Darnell says guns belong in the hands of law enforcement. Well, I think the role of guns should be on on the hips or in the hands of law enforcement at this point. I am open to discussion regarding other alternatives, but right now, uh, you know, being able to operate, manage, and keep a gun safe uh, and out of the hands of people that don't know what they're doing with them is best left to law enforcement at this point in time. Darnell explains the training process that law enforcement officials go through. Uh, they go through a high level of scrutiny regarding their background. Uh, law enforcement goes through a tremendous level of training. And uh, so it's, it's right now I'm comfortable only with law enforcement at this point having uh, operation and uh, control of guns in the schools. During the meeting between Superintendent Dan Boyd and, Alach- and Alachua County Sheriff Sadie Darnell, they are able to establish a work group. Darnell details what this group entails. Their charge is to come back with looking at what the schools already exist. Each one is pretty unique in themselves, either from their layout or the challenges that they face based upon where they may be placed throughout the county. So our our, uh, Juvenile Resource Bureau has already got a lot of information and a plan in place at each of the schools. They've already done a a critique of those, had that in file, and... um, and some needs assessment of, of you know, how can we even uh, do it even better. Darnell adds her main priority is to ensure safety in Alachua County. Later in the show, we'll discuss with the sheriff this past year's accomplishments and difficulties. 
As the half time in the school year is right around the corner, it's almost time to start preparing for the FCAT. From the summer debate over teaching to the test to the most recent controversy over teacher evaluations, this school year has been one full of ups and downs. State Board of Education members are bemoaning a glitch that occurred when Florida released the first results from its new teacher evaluation system. Just a few weeks ago, and teachers complained that they shouldn't be rated based on students they have not taught. Tonight, a public forum will take Take place at Buholtz High School to address the state-mandated teacher evaluation system. I spoke with Karen McCann, president of the Alachua County Education System, about what she hopes to see. This forum tonight is it? What exactly are you aiming to do for the public? We're hoping to educate and enlighten the public about uh, how teachers are being evaluated, and even more importantly, how these evaluations are going to affect their children. This isn't just a teacher issue because when teachers teach children, what affects them is also going to affect our children in school. Uh, The high stakes testing primarily that a lot of the kids are experiencing along with teachers. Uh, We're going to have some discussion about that. Is it more so to just discuss what exactly is being mandated? According to um, our Senate Bill 736, This year, if we didn't have at least two years of data prior to add, and Alachua County didn't, so we were permitted by law to have 40% of a teacher's evaluation linked to student data, and essentially that means tests. And next year, 50% of a teacher's evaluation, literally half, will be linked to a test. And we really have no opposition, by the way, to accountability or to teachers being evaluated. Um, Most teachers welcome uh, accountability and actually feel good about students passing certification areas. We have unbelievable results with kids in our magnet schools getting certified to go out into the world and be pharmacy techs and CNAs and chefs and, and all sorts of things. But it's basically the way the process is working right now. 75% of the teachers in our district were evaluated on FCAT reading, and they didn't teach those students. So the system is flawed, and that's really what the forum is about, is um, bringing this to light and seeing how we can work with our legislators to try to fix the system, the process, rather. And what is it most likely that you think people will say that they want done between state legislatures, any school board members, any employees? What do you think people want to see? Well, I think anybody, regardless of what their profession is, wants to know that the way that they're being evaluated is fair and it's equitable and it really evaluates what they do in their job performance. The way the system is set up right now, you know, we have end-of-the-year high-stakes test, which is the FCAT, which is driving the evaluations of everyone. It's just really, it's ridiculous. Uh, It it puts undue pressure on the children when you have a high-stakes test of 50% of your evaluation is going to be determined by that. The sense, the anxiety that the teachers feel is translated down to the kids. Kids now can't move from third grade on or they may not graduate from high school. There's, There's all kinds of repercussions based on this single test. So it's really a flawed process that we're using. It's not in opposition to accountability. 
McCann says the forum is simply a discussion with lawmakers about other possibilities for teacher evaluations. State Representative Keith Perry will be there tonight. I spoke with him earlier today, and he says he wants to hear everyone's input to take it up to Tallahassee. But what exactly do you expect to see from this forum tonight? My goal is to gather information that is going to be useful in looking at policies on the basis of the state legislature in this upcoming session. Those are going to be both local concerns, which may be different or they may be similar to some of the statewide issues that we'll be facing. And what are some of the state concerns with the evaluation system the way it is? We've got certain measurements and accountability issues that are in effect, and there's been some concern over whether or not how accurate or fair those are in implementing the teacher evaluations. And so what we want to do is look at, you know, what what are the issues? I think teacher measurement is probably one of the biggest things in a lot of people's minds right now. So what I have to do as a legislator is to balance the needs in the most effective way to deliver an education system to the children, look at how, how the taxpayer's money is being spent and a free environment that provides teachers the most support, the most opportunities to do that. It's their uh, job and I want to make sure I give them every opportunity that I can. And I know one of the biggest things that teachers are kind of worried about is kind of just the fairness of it all. Is it something that, I mean, what exactly goes into the evaluation system right now that people are not happy about? Well, I don't know. They have not uh, expressed that, and that's what I'm hoping to find out tonight. There are things that they're doing now that we need to implement into the state policy. So, until I get answers to, to how some of the things work on a local level and, and what they use for measurements today and what they think are, are places that need improvement, things that need to be changed or altered or, you know, are just taken completely out. So my goal tonight is really just to listen, to learn, to be inquisitive and ask questions to them. And hopefully, you know, I think we can make a lot of progress. Everybody wants the same ultimate goal, and I don't think there's, there's I don't believe teachers at all want to not to be held accountable. I think teachers don't mind at all being measured. They don't mind implementing systems. What they want is something that's fair, accurate, take uh, the sub- subjectivity out of. My goal always is to take politics out of issues, and I think we can accomplish this. I think we really can. We've got a lot of really smart people. I met with a couple of school board members last week. Some of these people are dedicated, smart, so I'm hoping to glean a lot of information from them and then take that up to Tallahassee. I'll do my best to use the influence that I have and represent us on the issues that concern us all. The forum is tonight in the Buholtz High School Auditorium from 7 to 8.30 p.m. And when you talk to high school students who have plans to go to college, they like to think their public schools are preparing them for the next step. Like sophomore Tavares Wilson at Miami Northwestern Senior High. They're preparing me for the future and that I'm learning every day new things and getting better at what I do in school. But in 2011, more than 30,000 Florida high school graduates weren't ready for college-level work, so they had to take remedial classes. That's the finding of an analysis by the WLRN Miami Herald News State Impact Florida team and the Florida Center for Investigative Reporting. Sarah Gonzalez reports on what the state is doing to ensure high school graduates are ready for college. Florida's ditching the FCAT, the state standardized test, along with its current standards. The new standards are called Common Core, and they will be fully implemented in a few years. The goal is to better prepare students for college. 45 states in the District of Columbia have adopted the new standards, even though the new curriculum hasn't been developed yet. New textbooks haven't been approved, and the new standardized test is still being created. Critics like Bob Schaefer with the National Center for Fair and Open Testing say standardized tests should be treated more like prescription drugs. In order to sell a new pharmaceutical, you have to prove 
in this case to a federal agency, the Food and Drug Administration, that it is safe and that it's effective, meaning that it does what the promoters say it will do without bad side effects. In education, it's the other way around. Schaefer says the new test should be tested before states decide to make it mandatory for all students. But supporters say standards have to come first so you know what to test. Former Florida Governor Jeb Bush says Common Core standards are already working in other developed countries. He's long been a proponent of the FCAT until now. He thinks Common Core will work better. Because I've talked to a lot of people that are experts in the field of standards uh, and what kids need to learn in the 21st century to be successful. And what they say is that the greatest country the face of the earth measures itself to lower standards than what, what the best is in the world. So I would argue uh, that we should, we should embark on this journey. Florida teamed up with test developers and education commissioners in 21 states in the District of Columbia to create a new standardized test. The federal government is footing the bill. Meanwhile, the Florida Department of Education is creating new course descriptions, and textbook companies are dictating the new curriculum, the lessons teachers use in their classrooms. Mary Jane Tappan is in charge of curriculum at the Florida Department of Education. She says since districts can choose from a list of approved textbooks, curriculum may vary across the state but the tests will all be the same. They're supposed to be more rigorous and will require students to defend their answers. So students are dividing fractions, for example. A student might say, you flip over the second fraction. And a teacher might say, you multiply by the reciprocal. But a student will have to be able to explain why that works. And a teacher is going to have to be able to instruct to show how that works. State education officials don't think Common Core alone will solve Florida's remedial education problem. Starting next year, students won't be able to graduate high school without taking a math class higher than Algebra 1. The year after that, Algebra 2. And the state is already testing juniors to see if they're ready for college. If they're not, they take college readiness courses their senior year, so they won't have to pay tuition for those same classes in college. There are some challenges ahead, though. Some school districts don't know how they'll pay for all the new textbooks. And since the new test is computer only, how they'll get enough computers. With State Impact Florida, I'm Sarah Gonzalez in Miami. Since the Great Recession began in 2007, more students are heading back to college. Many have lost jobs or want to earn more. But students often discover they must relearn grade school lessons in remedial math, reading, or writing classes. 85% of students in remedial classes are age 20 or older, according to an analysis by Florida Center for Investigative Reporting in State Impact Florida. Students in remedial classes are less likely to earn a degree. As part of a series on remedial education, State Impact Florida's John O'Connor reports Florida's colleges are finding ways to make it easier for students to finish. Pepper Hearth moved to Florida from New Jersey with three children, but had to leave her real estate career behind. Her weekend gigs singing with the band weren't enough after the recession hit. You know, I have really just been a working single mom for a very long time. When I moved down to Florida, I never imagined how difficult job opportunities were going to be. I just got tired of having dead-end jobs and not making enough money. And it's, it's a tough economy, and you really you have to be competitive. At age 50, Hearth is studying music at St. Petersburg College. She's eyeing a career in music therapy. But she learned she had to take remedial courses before she could start on her studies. Math is the problem for Hearth, especially algebra. Because it's letters and numbers and polynomials and trinomials, and we were like, what? It never was a strong point for me. I, I was always a good student. I'm still 
a good student, but I work very hard at it, and I will be relieved when it's all over with. (laughs) Nationally, just one in four students who take a remedial college course complete their studies within eight years. Florida State Colleges are experimenting with ways to make remedial courses less of a burden. Tallahassee Community College is testing a program which streamlines two required math courses into one semester. Math professor Jim Smart teaches the Statway program. One of the biggest obstacles to students completing their math requirements in general and their developmental requirements specifically is that there's so many steps along the way. A student who starts at the very beginning level of developmental math will have to take a total of five math classes to complete their mathematics requirements. Smart says the program also swaps out algebra for statistics because it's easier to teach the real-life uses. It helps older students whose math skills have atrophied. The students seem to enjoy learning math that they can relate to, that they understand and see in the media every day. And here's a statistic. Students in Statway are two and a half times more likely to finish their required math courses than those in the traditional program. Florida College System President Randy Hanna says the state's 28 colleges are a national leader in experimenting with programs such as Statway. He admits Florida's remedial rate is too high, but he says Florida colleges are crucial for training workers, and he says they should be open to every student. We're willing to invest in students who want to better themselves. If you're a 25-year-old veteran returning from Afghanistan, we're not saying the door's closed to you. We're saying we're going to work with you, and that's something we should celebrate. That includes programs at Miami-Dade and St. Petersburg Colleges, which use courses you take at your own pace on a computer. Students can quickly tick off their required remedial courses if they prove they understand the material. St. Petersburg College student Pepper Harse says she uses online study materials and frequently visits the school's tutor lab. The support at this school, I just, I love it. I absolutely love this environment. The staff, the teachers, I mean, they're so supportive. I have met the most wonderful people. It's really been life-changing. She says she used to think she was too old to go back to school. Now she's tutoring others like her. With State Impact Florida, I'm John O'Connor in Tampa. You're listening to the front page edition of All Things Considered on Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM. I'm Cameron Taylor. And I'm Catherine Awasti. As we continue our series of interviews with community leaders reflecting on 2012 and looking forward to 2013, we continue our discussion with with Republican State Representative Dennis Baxley. Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM's L. Newbold spoke with Representative Baxley last Friday on the issues of gun control and the Stand Your Ground law. She continues part two of that discussion. We're finally seeing some... Uh, research of the revenue estimating projections that we should uh, have bottomed out and start seeing some new revenues return to replace over $5 billion that we eroded during the recessionary period the last four years. So that will be a, a wonderful thing if we can see that we're starting to recover in Florida's economy. That's most vivid here at home because we were one of three, in a national report, one of three metropolitan areas in Ocala that uh, are seeing uh, over two points in decline in unemployment. So those are good points. The other is to know that we're less indebted at the state level. We're seeing our bonded uh, commitments more in control and uh, just that some of the fiscal soundness that we've exercised has paid off, even though it was difficult to implement. Were there any big issues faced this year? 
clearly for the legislature, one of the biggest issues will be how do we respond to the uh, uh, Health Care, Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, in order to fulfill what commitments we needed to fulfill at the state level now that we've seen some political resolution, at least to knowing that uh, this has been through the courts. Uh, we've been through an election. What do we do moving forward? What are our options? And what is the economic impact of those decisions? It's probably going to take a lot more information before the state of Florida really knows how to respond to all of that. But it, it will be a big part of the decision. And then the other part will be some pending issues that are out there on uh, lawsuits of how they're resolved, particularly those related to pension uh, reform in Florida. And uh, because those have big price tags as to which way uh, they are decided in the courts. So those are some big things that are on the rise. And the, the other thing that's a new thing that I'm working on from chair of judiciary is trying to implement some uh, judicial re- or some reforms in the uh, area of criminal justice, smart justice, so that we're tough on crime, but we're also smart on crime, particularly on those that are going to be reentering. That was Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM's L. Newbold speaking with Republican State Representative Dennis Baxley. Earlier in the show, I was able to speak with Alachua County Sheriff Sadie Darnell about gun control and safety procedures within schools. I was also able to talk with her about the Sheriff's Office accomplishments and difficulties. From our Department of the Jail standpoint, being able to renew the interlocal agreement with the Board of County Commission for a six-year term. Uh, It it took some time getting to that point, several months, uh, but uh, that uh, interlocal agreement was renewed effective October 1 for a six-year term, so I'll be managing the jail uh, for the next six years as long as we can all attend to the or adhere to the agreements of the interlocal. From our communications center standpoint, I'm very pleased to uh, be able to discuss that we reached what is called the partnership status with the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. And what that means is that every communications uh, call taker in our center is trained and has reached certification level to respond to missing or abducted children incidents. We're one of only seven law enforcement public safety answering points in the state that has achieved this status, so it's something that we're very proud of. Uh, We've also um, done a lot of work in our trauma intervention area having to do with the um, domestic violence incidents. Domestic violence incidents are one of the most dangerous Uh, situations for law enforcement to respond and they're also lethal uh, for victims so we put a lot of importance and emphasis on on that we back in 19 i'm sorry back in 2009 we were the first agency to implement uh, a lethality assessment program we continue with it today and that's why it's another highlight for 2012 because we've gotten great success with the Uh, participation and commitment of the deputies who responded to domestic violence incidents and this is one of the only murders that we have a chance to prevent so it's a a highly successful program and it's one that is directly related to intervening uh, intervention in murders and uh, serious injury now what would you say were some of the more difficult issues that you had to deal with this year Well, the economy still uh, is a challenge. It has been for many years now in a row, and so it means that we're actually doing more with less. And by doing more, uh, we have uh, highly technical kinds of crimes that are being committed more and more, the the identity theft uh, and the 
large-scale operations uh, primarily related to uh, stealing from people in various forms, either through scams or through uh, misrepresentation, the frauds and those kinds of things. And some of those reach the level of being international-level types of crimes, so they're hugely uh, resource-intensive and very costly and very difficult to deal with. Florida is the number one state in the nation for identity theft, so we have uh, that on our plate to try to deal with in the midst of everything else, such as, um, you know, right now our priority and will remain one of our priorities going into 2013 is an emphasis on uh, safety for our children in our schools. That was Alachua County Sheriff Sadie Darnell. It's been nearly six months since Tropical Storm Debbie hit north-central Florida, but the effects of this storm are still there. I was able to explore Live Oak, which was one of the towns hit hardest by the storm, to find out how the community was able to recover. I spoke with community leaders, including the Live Oak Public Works Director, Brent Whitman, the Sewanee County Sheriff, Tony Cameron, and a business owner. Brent Whitman is the Live Oak Public Works Director. When I first got off off the interstate coming into town, there were some agricultural fields back to the south. It looked like a pond or a lake. I mean, it, 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 they, it was acres, 20, 30 acres of standing water. Um, I couldn't believe it. Couldn't believe it. Um, I went down uh, 129 to try to get into town, and all the roads were shut off. They had all the roads barricaded. The people in my department knew, well, the water has to go here. Well, the problem was, was you had water for miles and miles and miles behind it to get there. And, you, and they're, they're just, they're, there wasn't enough pumps in the world to move everything. It was just a time. It was like a puzzle. The, sit, the city of Live Oak was built in a bowl. There's no natural stormwater outlets for the city. Um, so any, any major rain event causes flooding in the city. So it's something... It's something that, that, that we're, we're used to dealing with, but not on the scale that happened. Tony Cameron is a Sewanee County Sheriff. Sheriff's Office, Charmaine speaking. Uh, there were times when uh, we were all stressed and uh, under a lot of pressure. And, you know, we continued to move forward and everybody continued to, to work together. And I think when you have a, a situation like this with, a, with that much devastation, it really draws a community closer together. Areas in the city, if you look, that um, the buildings will never be used again, so they're not for rent. They'll eventually have to be torn down. And uh, there are several of those uh, right in the downtown area. And then there's some that are sort of just across the street uh, from it uh, at an intersection there that uh, a business was in that it moved to another location and the people restored that building and, and have got it back into shape and, and they've got it up for rent again. In 1964, I was a child when another tropical storm came through and dumped that kind of water. So I had seen it before, uh, the city being devastated. And it has, we've had ups and downs with weather and flooding here for the past, you know, forever. But in the last 40 years, we've never seen any devastation such as occurred this time. Barney Everett is a Live Oak business owner. On the next corner, I had a, a, what I call a double building. It was 5,000 square feet. 
and we had it full. I mean, we, you know, type of stuff you see in here, we call it a stuff store because we got antiques, collectibles, furniture, you, you name it, we got a little bit of everything. As a result of that sinkhole, the sinkhole, and the water just, boom. So uh, a day after that, we started getting the water out of the store that was standing here and there and uh, started trying to save as much stuff as we could. And we piled it all out in the middle of the highway, and, and a friend of mine brought a big trailer down, and we started moving it to warehouses. And uh, I lost about 50% of my inventory. A lot of money went down the drain. Um, I didn't put money in the bank. I put it in inventory. The day that I started moving stuff out, it wasn't any time. The sheriff had actually put a, and the, and the building inspector had put a note on the door, no admittance because of, it was dangerous. And I had to go in anyway. I was going to go in and get what I could save, you know. And people started coming in, and I said, uh, hey, look, you can't come in here. You see that sign? And they'd say, get out of the way. they come in. At one time, we probably had 30 people in and out, picking up and carrying out, picking out and carrying out. Some people I, di- I didn't even know. Some people that had been maybe in the store one time. Some people had never been in the store. But they saw there was somebody in need, and they came, came to help. And, uh, and that's the kind of people that, that live around here. The businesses are still out of business. Uh, the downtown, uh, the, uh, the, there's, a, there's a block between U.S. 90 and Warren Street. There's a sinkhole under, and those, those buildings have been condemned. Um, and there's a few other buildings in the downtown area that, are, that were flooded that, are, that don't have tenants in them as well. Um, Infrastructure-wise... We had, like I said, we have we have the majority of our infrastructure fixed now. Um, we still have we still have a couple projects, as I said, with the sinkholes. Um, most of our roads have been patched. If we could have stopped ten inches sooner, we would probably have been fine. But when you get that kind of rain, there's just no way that the infrastructure here can take that water away. We like the people in this town. The people were good to us when we were in business, you know, and they've been good to us since we reopened. And I think it'll, it'll come back. I think our business will come back. And you can view the whole multimedia version of this story on WUFT.org. Ecotourism is becoming a growing segment of the tourism industry in Florida. And as Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM's Ben Bornstein reports, the Florida National Scenic Trail is popular for hikers and outdoorsmen across the state. The Florida National Scenic Trail is a stretch of trail about 1,400 miles long and a hotspot for ecotourism in Florida. The trail gets over 350,000 users each year and looks to increase that number with the international growth of ecotourism reaching a yearly rate of 5%. University of Florida Professor of Ecotourism Taylor Stein says that most people who use the trails, however, are locals and they are not necessarily a hotspot for international tourists. One of our big things is that there's a lot of local use of the trail, so we're not, unlike the Appalachian Trail that a lot of tourists go to, we're not getting people coming from afar to really hike our trail. In fact, people don't go more than half hour in some cases to go hike our trail. Stein says that the industry doesn't get as much attention as the theme parks or beaches until the economy goes bad. That's when the state parks and trails seem more use because people, especially families, tend to stay closer to home rather than spending the money on a hotel room or air flights. And in Florida, when our tourism is about beaches and amusement parks, it kind of we got to bang them up the head and say, "Oh yeah!" And we have 150 wonderful state parks and wonderful national parks. So sometimes, um, kind of, they get their attention, and we focus our efforts there a little bit more. 
In order to attract more people and keep regular users, the Florida Trail Association makes sure they maintain all of their trails. The FTA has an army of volunteers working year-round to keep the trails in top shape. Jacques Steer, the chapter chair of the Florida Crackers chapter of the FTA, says that all trails receive at least one maintenance hike and some areas get even more than that. Well, the trails, uh, once they're put in, uh, require maintenance uh, once a year before the season. And then in the summertime, some of the trails are maintained. Steer says that most of the support for the trails comes from local help and people who genuinely enjoy the trails. Most of these people are a part of the Florida Crackers and receive training with help from the U.S. Department of Agricultural Forest Service. Steer says that the Forest Service gives monetary support to the FTA and that money trickles down to each chapter in Florida. At the organization level, that's, that's where they're getting a lot of their funding is through the U.S. Forest Service. But we work with all the different agencies to to help uh, complete the maintenance of, of the trail. As trail enthusiasts and hikers get ready for winter hiking season, Steer hopes they will appreciate the trails and the work that goes into them. From Florida's WUFT-FM 89.1, I'm Ben Bornstein in Gainesville. Former Olympic track athlete Tim Montgomery from Gaffney, South Carolina, will share his story of using performance-enhancing drugs with students at Lofton High School in Gainesville tomorrow. In 2005, Montgomery was stripped of all of his results, records, and awards, including his world record of a 9.78 time in the 100-meter race. Montgomery sat down with Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM's Dana Lewin in our studio today to tell his story about making one wrong decision that changed his life forever. In 2002, Tim Montgomery was considered the fastest man in the world. Today, he lives with his family in Gainesville and works as a professional speed coach and motivational speaker. He tells his story to young people, hoping they won't make the same mistake that he once did. I'm from a small town, Gaffney, South Carolina a one high school town and I was told all my life that I was too small, that I was too dumb, that I was too dark, that I wouldn't amount to anything. My dad loved football. All he used to do is watch football. And I just used to sit around and he used to look at me and talk about football. So I tried out for the football team. But I was born premature. Um two months I really couldn't hold any food down so I was I weighed 128 pounds when I went to college and everyone knows track as being a speed powerful event and I went out for the football team and I broke my arm three times and I mean it was just horrible I went to back to my dad and told my dad I wanted to quit my dad's a Vietnam vet and quitting is not in his blood and the look on his face was just like, you're quitting? And I said, yes, sir, I cannot take it anymore. So I looked for a different sport, something I couldn't get hurt in, hopefully. So I went out for the track team, and when I went to track practice, the coach looked at me and said, um, what event are you trying out for, son? I said, something short, maybe the 100 meters. He said, uh, huh, I don't think you'll make it in the 100 meters. You just don't have any muscles. But it is trout, so line up over there, and when you hear the gun go bang, take off. So I went over there with the other kids and closed my eyes and said a little prayer and waited for that gun to go bang. When I opened my eyes, the race was over, 
and guys was patting me on my back, and uh, I didn't know how I'd done. I, I ran the whole race with my eyes closed. It was by the grace of God that I even stayed in my lane. And the coach came over to me and said, I, I, I guess I can't judge a book by its cover. And um, he ended up telling me to come to practice the next day. I ended up uh, breaking the South Carolina 100-meter record. I went undefeated in high school. But still, college was not in my vocabulary. It wasn't even in my mind because I never went to class. All I did was hang out, selling drugs at a young age, running from the police with my speed. When the police showed up one day, Montgomery's friend Pepper hid his drugs and ran. When they came back to get the drugs, he noticed they were missing. A source told Pepper who took the $50 worth of drugs and Pepper shot the old man in the head. When they were pulled in for questioning, Montgomery says the judge noticed him and told him to leave the small town of Gaffney as fast as he could or else he would be put in jail. After attending college in Texas and Norfolk State in Virginia, his life took several twists and turns, winning many awards in track, but also getting in trouble for taking performance-enhancing drugs, a decision he has regretted all his life. In 2000, took a gold medal in 4 by one in Australia. In 2001, I made one of the biggest mistakes in my life. I let the way people proceed me to look that I have to be bigger, that I have to be stronger. So I got caught up with the Balco. Um, if you ever heard of Balco, that's what Barry Bonds, uh, Jason Giambi, Marion Jones, um, we was we all was out there with this doctor, and he gave us steroids. I was only with him for six months, and I left him because I just didn't feel right. A year later, I broke the world record. And I sit here today and tell you that I did not take anything the year that I broke the world record. But with my past of admitting that I took something in 2001, erased my 2002 world record. The thing that I had been seeking and striving for, all the hard work I had put in, was erased from a decision. So after making that bad decision, I didn't finish school because I came out early to pursue a professional career. And I really didn't think about letting go of my eight cars, my $1.2 million house, and just going to get a job or coaching or helping others. All I could think about was how people were going to look at me if I lost all that I had. So I got involved with a, a check scam for $5 million, and I ended up getting caught on a drug stain with heroin. And I served four years. I've been out seven months, but who's counting? To hear Tim Montgomery's full story, visit our website at www.wuft.org. For Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM, I'm Dana Lewin in Gainesville. Thanks for tuning in to the front page edition of All Things Considered. This has been a broadcast of Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM. I'm Cameron Taylor. And I'm Catherine Awasta.